0: It's late on a Friday afternoon, and I am near a place called Shortstown in Bedfordshire, England. And I'm standing in the shadow of two colossal buildings. They call them Cardington Hangars, also known as Cardington Sheds. And at 180 feet high and 812 feet long, these twin sheds dominate the landscape around here. Heck, I saw them from way back on the motorway, just a few miles away. And they're clad in corrugated steel sheeting painted green and I can see stairways and catwalks and gantries way up high now you might think you haven't seen these buildings before but actually you probably have that's because some of your favourite Hollywood films have been shot in these gigantic sheds Inception The Dark Knight Rises The Batman Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2 Star Wars Rogue One actually Star Wars A New Hope as well the list goes on It has been the home of spectacle and action and high-stakes drama and technical wizardry and ingenuity. All fiction, of course. And yet, if I had been standing on this very spot at 7.36pm back on Saturday, October 4th, 1930, I would have seen a stunning, real-life spectacle. Because at that moment, the R-101 airship, which was built in these sheds, was finally set free to fly its first ever passenger flight, from England all the way to India. And I'd have been joined by a huge crowd of onlookers, from local gawpers who came to see it fly, to engineers and seamstresses who came to see their own work rising at last, to family and friends waving an excited goodbye to the 54 people on board. It was a proud moment, a great achievement formed in this little town. There was a new way to travel and it could potentially change the world in style. And yet, by the following morning, this majestic and epic ship, that spoke of so much promise, would become a smouldering wreck strewn across a field in France, and amongst the debris, there would be many, many lives lost. It was a disaster that would put an end to airship production in the UK, but what led to the crash, and could it have been avoided? Well, I'm Peter Laws, and today on Hometown Histories Europe, we take to the skies for the sad tale of the hopeful rise and the tragic fall of the R101 airship. People were taking to the skies in hot air balloons as early as 1783, and yet a balloon could merely lift into the air. It couldn't maneuver against the wind. For that, it needed power. And so it wasn't until 1852 when French engineer Henri Giffard would attach a steam-powered engine and a propeller to a balloon, and he'd travel for 17 miles at 5 miles an hour. The important part was that this balloon was maneuverable. This meant it was more appropriate to call this an airship. The following decades saw airships of various designs reach the skies the most famous, perhaps, being the large gas balloon Zeppelins. These formidable airships were used by the German military in World War I. Historian David Fowler.
1: The Zeppelins had been bombing, successfully bombing, London and, and parts of the East Coast since early on in the war. And it took the government until 1916 to decide that perhaps we ought to have airships as well. And so Shorts, from the South Coast, got the contract. And at what became Shortstown... The number 1 shed was built, the manufacturing sheds as well, and housing as well for the employees.
0: And in the years ahead, a series of airships were made here at Cardington, including the R-31 and R-34. They also built the R-38, which was the world's biggest airship at the time. And that was bought by the Americans, and it was renamed the ZR-2 by the US Navy. Yet on the 24th of August 1921, the ZR-2 was flying over the city of Hull in England when the ship folded in half and crashed into a body of water there called the Humber Estuary, tragically killing 44 of the 49 crew aboard. Despite this major crash, the march for airships continued, leading to the creation of a pair of rigid airships which were completed in 1929, the R-100 and the ill-fated R-101.
1: The R-101 was going to be a large airship, bigger than the Zeppelins, 237 metres long, 40 metres in diameter, and with structural ribs of duralumin, 17 of them with 16 gas bags in between. Those gas bags were going to contain hydrogen, but there was nothing man-made that could contain that gas. Cotton was used, but to make it gas-tight, they used, believe it or not, the intestines of cows, oxen, cattle, and some 1.2 million of those intestines was used. Scraped clean and then put in layers down to the cotton to contain the
0: gas. These new ambitious airships weren't designed to drop bombs, but to transport cargo and airmail and passengers all around the world and in style.
1: The government was Determined to provide luxury air travel a- across the world, around the world. The idea being that you could sit there at 60 or 70 miles an hour in an airship, in luxury accommodation, and go across to Montreal, go to Egypt, or out to India. And eventually, there were going to be airships traveling right across to New Zealand, South Africa, etc. And Bedford was going to be the centre hub for imperial routes around the world.
0: To help the passengers enjoy their time on these international trips, there were additions to the airship that brought a little bit of comfort in the air. For example, an elegant and attractive dining salon was on board, and there was a lounge and promenade deck where passengers could sit on deck chairs and gaze down at the passing world far below. One of these additions seems a little bit out of place on an airship.
1: Uh, Think back to the 1930s, Everyone smoked, and so, of course, there was a smoking room to seat 24 people. When you think about it, smoking just below, gas bags full of hydrogen that might leak, well, they were relatively sane in that time. Of course, gas, the hydrogen would have gone upwards. It was pretty low concentration, and the only thing they were really worried about was people stubbing out their fag ends on the floor. So a protective sheet of duralumin was laid across the floor of the smoking room to stop people burning or setting the floor alight.
0: All of this was carefully planned and designed with a strict focus on minimising the weight. So decanters and mugs were made of glass, chairs were made of wicker, and the ornate-looking columns that looked like marble were actually painted balsa wood close up. It was all to make sure that the load on board was as light as possible but to also give people a sense of romance about air travel. And by July 1930, it looked like this was going to be a great industry. The R-100 made a successful flight all the way across the Atlantic, from Cardington to Canada. And to onlookers, things must have looked rather promising for airships yet few people were aware of how risky that flight had actually been. The R-100 had only had seven test flights. That's a mere 150 hours in the air before an epic voyage from Cardington to Montreal. By today's standards, this was a shockingly low amount of testing, and yet they went ahead and the gamble seemed to have paid off. To the watching world, the R-100 was a triumph, and great world-changing technology was there to see but being built in Cardington. So why expect anything less from her sister ship? But back in England, they were having some issues.
1: So the R101 made its trial flights in 26th, 28th of June, 1930, but she was not giving the lift that had been intended. So she was taken back into the shed, cut in half, and an extra gas bag, the 17th gas bag was inserted.
0: And the R101 had 12 test flights in total. That's 127 hours flying time. This was not enough testing. And yet they pressed ahead to plan the R101's first long-distance flight. And one of the core driving forces behind this push was a man called Christopher Birdwood Thompson, better known as Lord Thompson. He was a former British Army officer who became the Secretary of State for Air in the Labour government at the time and the plan was for the R101 to travel from Cardington to Karachi in India via Egypt. This considerable journey would involve a 15 days round trip. That's five days to get there, six days to get back, with a stopover for four days. These sorts of numbers were impressive at the time. Travelling to Karachi by sea would normally have taken four weeks. So you can understand why these airships were seen as a vast improvement to modern transport. But Thompson was particularly fixated on this trip because he was attending a conference in Karachi and he planned to arrive in India in style on the R101. It would be a grand statement of the ingenuity of the British airship industry. Yet critics also said that Lord Thompson wanted this blaze of publicity for other reasons too. He wanted to become the next Viceroy of India, the country in which he was born. He argued that if the R101 turned up late or heaven forbid, not at all, due to any sort of technical difficulty, that would be disastrous for both him and the industry. And nobody really challenged him. Perhaps this was simply a symptom of the time where people felt the chain of command was never to be challenged. Or maybe he persuaded them that the British airship industry and all those workers at Cardington had livelihoods that depended on a successful run. Whatever the case, they pressed on with their grand plans to get Thompson to Karachi. And so the week of the flight came. The plan was to fly on Friday, the 3rd of October. And so on the Wednesday of that week, the crew took her out for a 17-hour test flight and returned on the Thursday. But they informed Thompson that they had been unable to carry out a full-powered trial because there was a problem with one of the engines. Thompson seemed to shrug this off and said he was still keen to get going on the Friday, the next day. This perplexed the crew and they explained to him that apart from anything else, they needed a rest... They had just been on a 17-hour flight, and now they were back, it's not that they were going to just bed down for rest, they had lots of maintenance and cleaning to do after the test flight, not to mention all of the preparation for the next flight, the major one. Thompson still wanted to head out to India on the Friday, but he was eventually persuaded to delay the flight, but only by one day. They would fly on Saturday, the 4th of October instead Even though they hadn't obtained a complete airworthiness certificate After all, they hadn't been able to do a full-powered trial This, you must understand, would never be allowed today But despite continued misgivings from the crew Thompson said they would fly as planned He'd already been kind enough to grant them that extra day And so the day of the flight came It was a Saturday And people in the know were nervous Especially when Lord Thompson turned up with a ridiculous amount of luggage. Now bear in mind what we heard before that the glass mugs and the balsa wood pillars were all picked specifically to keep the load as light as possible on board. Even the crew were not allowed suitcases, they brought a change of shirt and underwear in a wrapped paper package and that was it. Lord Thompson turned up however with a large red Persian carpet that he wanted to roll out for state banquets. And he also brought a bunch of heavy cases of champagne. The ship was overloaded and the weather reports for that day were not promising at all. And yet the press were gathering and the expectation was high.
1: Thompson was in a hurry. There was no one who was bold enough to stand up to him and say, look, my lad, um, let's take a few weeks longer. No, he wanted to go out to Karachi for the conference and he was determined to go.
0: We can get a glimpse of the feeling of that day from a man called Albert George Hunt. In 2001, he spoke to the BBC about that launch day. Albert said that before his dad went to work that night, they were sharing dinner together. And his father finished and grabbed his flight bag and kissed his wife and daughter goodbye. And then he motioned to Albert to walk with him down the lane. And so he and his father made their way on foot, a short distance to Cardington Sheds. They reached the grounds, and just before his father headed inside... Albert said that his dad turned to him and said, Look lad, I want you to make two promises. One is that you join the Navy. And the other is that you must promise me that you'll look after your mother and your sister. Because I might not be coming back from this flight. And with that, he turned and walked off towards the R101. In the early evening of Saturday, the 4th of October, the engines of the R101 were fired up. And it's said they made quite a roar but over it you could not help but notice the rain and the rising strong wind. Yet even the bad weather couldn't stop this. The crew and the passengers boarded the vessel and it was unhooked from the mooring mast. And then, finally, the R101 left the Cardington home in which it was born for its first real lengthy voyage. But before setting off on this trip, she made a low flight across Bedford. This was a cruise of salute to the town that had built her. And the people looked up to see their airship, this bright symbol of the future, which could change the world. All those hands that had crafted her together waved a goodbye, and she turned. And as the weather grew more and more dire, she made her way toward France. The airship gained altitude, but the gale and rain was still raging. They still pressed on, however. And later that night, wireless reports on the bridge said that the flight was actually going well. It said... After an excellent supper, our distinguished passengers smoked a final cigar, and having sighted this French coast, have now gone to bed to rest after the excitement of their leave-taking. All essential services are functioning satisfactorily. Crew have settled down to watch-keeping routine. This was the last message we have from the ship. The rest of the information we have is pieced together from witnesses, survivor accounts, and the crash site evidence.
1: But as they got towards France, the weather forecast said that there were going to be storms. It was going to be very windy on the ridge near Beauvais. Again, there was no-one who was bold enough to stand up to Thompson and say, look, let's take a detour. Let's, it might take us a bit longer to get out to Grashy, but it'll be safer. No, they carried on.
0: It said that it was in the early hours of the morning, when two engineers noticed something. They were changing over the watches when they looked out of the window of the airship and saw spires, and pinnacles and windows of a large gothic church drifting past at eye level. This was way too low. Something had gone badly wrong. They were flying over the town of Beauvais in northern France when the ship started to roll in the winds, enough to cause the crew to lose their balance, enough for the wicker furniture to start sliding around the dining cart. And at around 2 a.m., a ship went into a dive. It recovered and cruised along at a lower altitude, but then it went into another dive. The nose of the ship stooped and started pointing toward the ground. It would not recover again. The irony is that this talented crew had managed to reduce the speed of the ship to that required for a perfect landing, about 13.8 miles per hour. So when the ship actually hit the field it would have been with a relatively gentle nudge, not a violent, shuddering impact. A wireless operator, A. Disley, was one of the few survivors, and he said that the impact was so soft that it didn't even unbalance him on his feet. And also, the evidence from the crash site found that the only really significant impact mark in the field was a single nine-foot-long groove in the soil about two feet deep. This had been cut by the nose cone of the ship. And in some ways, you might even say that this wasn't strictly a crash, but more like a forced emergency landing. And if that's all that had been, it's possible that most, if not everybody on board would have probably clambered out of the R101, shaken, injured maybe, perhaps even embarrassed, but thankful to be alive. But the ship was carrying 17 gas bags. And after the impact, something ignited. Fire broke out with terrifying speed consuming the ship immediately. It caused every gas bag to explode. That is five and a half million cubic feet of hydrogen. The inferno swept through the ship and every wicker chair and paper package and bottle of champagne was incinerated. And along with it, 48 lives were lost.
1: When you see photographs of the eventual skeleton, um, there's nothing left. There were six survivors, uh, 48 died in the crash. Amongst those not officially listed was James Buck, and he was valet to Lord Thompson. Poor old Lord Thompson couldn't put his own shirt on, put his own jacket on, or his own socks. He had to have a valet there, which was surprising because one of the main considerations was weight. So Buck would have meant extra weight, The eventual inquiry said that the disaster was probably caused by chafing. That is, small tears in the gas bags rapidly causing a large tear in one of the forward gas bags.
0: The news of this disaster shocked the world. This was like another Titanic at the time, which had only gone down over 18 years before in 1912. And of course the heartbreak was for the lives lost, but also... For the dreams of a future, the hope of technology, of new developments in industry, all of that was now scattered and scorched in an unrecognisable skeleton, smouldering in a French field.
1: Um, the coffins came by rail from Beauvais to Calais, destroyer across the channel, then by train up to London, where they were laid out in Westminster Hall. On the Friday, a memorial service was held at St Paul's Cathedral. 90,000 people queued along the embankment to walk through Westminster Hall to to see the 48 coffins laid out. And on the Saturday, there was a procession from Westminster up to Euston Station, past the Cenotaph, where again crowds turned out to watch that. It was a bit of a Diana moment.
0: They were then taken to Bedford by train, and then back to Cardington,
1: they were buried in a communal grave in St. Mary's churchyard. A communal grave because, think about it, a lot of those bodies would have been disfigured with the fire. They would not have had DNA in those days to recognise and the, the, the bodies. And uh, although a few of them were identified, the majority were not. The decision was taken that they should all go in one common grave.
0: They were laid to rest not far from the two hangars in which they had worked and worried and hoped and prayed and played their part in the advancement of transport.
1: So with the crash of the R101, that was the end of airships in UK. But overseas in Germany, the Graf Zeppelin was still flying well and they built a new airship, the Hindenburg. She was successful across the Atlantic 34 times, until in May 1937, she was due to land at New York, above Lakehurst, New Jersey. When they came to drop the rope, there was a spark that jumped across, and she went up in flames.
0: Get out of the way,
1: please. It's burning, bursting into flames, and and it's falling on the morning fast, and all the folks between that this is terrible, this is one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen, the and the now, and the rising to the ground. Amazingly, out of the 97 on board, 62 survived. And when you see that wreckage, it is amazing that anyone got out.
0: While ships may not have been required anymore, the workers at Cardington Sheds did continue to use their expertise later in World War II. From 1936 to 37, they started making barrage balloons there, and they also employed their skills in some remarkable ways. Also, uh, at
1: Carrington, dummy inflatable tanks were made. They were to be used on D-Day or prior to D-Day, distributed around the south coast so that the Germans, looking from above, would think they were real. But actually, they were blow-up ones that could actually be, be almost, uh, when deflated, almost carried under your
0: arm. But this huge space meant it later became a place for other big-scale projects. In the 1970s, multi-story concrete and wooden buildings were built inside the sheds just to be destroyed in gas explosion experiments. But it's now become best known as a studio space for the entertainment industry. Paul McCartney, One Direction, U2, ACDC, Mariah Carey, they've all used the sheds to rehearse their concerts. But it's particularly well-known now as a filming space, and it's been the location of films as varied as Chitty Chitty Bang Bang to Justice League to Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. In 2016, the site was even used for the development of a new breed of airship, the Airlander 10, which uses the non-flammable, non-toxic gas, helium. But progress has been sporadic, with technical difficulties along the way, and perhaps there is little taste to revive the airships when the images of the Hindenburg and the R101 still haunt the collective memory. They certainly haunt here, where I'm standing right now. I've moved from the hangars and I've driven a short way to St. Mary's Church. Inside that church is one of the last remaining objects of the R101, the flag, which had somehow survived the crash and the fire. The people, however, are buried about a metre away from my foot right now. Let me describe to you what I'm looking at. I'm in a graveyard, and before me is a white memorial of Portland stone, under which is brick and reinforced concrete. And this lettering, which has been meticulously carved, says, Heal lie the bodies of 48 officers and men who perished in Her Majesty's airship R101 at Beauvais, France, October 5th. 1930. And on it, I can see the names of the dead listed. I see George Hunt, the dad who said goodbye to his son, knowing that this would be his final flight. And of course I see the name of Lord Thompson, clearly listed, with the additional words etched before his name, the right honourable. The brickwork, the carving, the skill here in this memorial alone is a testament to the artistry and talent of people, and so are the airships themselves. And so are the sheds actually. They are huge and impressive. And so are all the films that have been created here and the music that has been sung. All of this is a reminder that we as humans are skilled and ingenious and talented and ambitious. And in our quest for progress and achievement, we are sometimes impatient. That impatience can actually lead to great success. But sometimes impatient is the very worst quality we can show The R101 was a symbol of progress, and in some strange way, perhaps that's exactly what it became. Not so much in terms of airflight technology, but in the changes to the planning and testing of aircraft that came in its wake. After incidents like this today, we would never launch a craft with such little testing. Maybe we're stubborn, and we needed to learn the hard way. In its own way, perhaps the loss of the R101 really did lead to progress. After all, I'm Peter Laws, and you've been listening to Hometown Histories Europe.